everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Lead podcast brought to you by Ability, an experiential learning company based in beautiful Austin, Texas. I'm your host, Matthew Confer, and today on the show, we have Tara Furiani, who is the CEO of Not the HR Lady and is also the former chief people officer of Alamo Drafthouse Cinema. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tara. Oh, Matt, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. You have spent time as the chief people officer at organizations in the tech industry, the financial industry, and the media industry. When you take a step back and look across industries, how do you describe the most important job of a chief people officer? That is a great question. And you're right. I have spent time in multiple industries. And the one thing that always resonates I think that companies need the most uh, is somebody to help wrangle the executive team. So what does that look like? A chief people officer is that trusted advisor, that confidant, that person who helps, uh, you know, the rest of the C-suite whose focus may not be on people. That might not be their discipline or their strong suit even. Um, give them opportunities to really understand the humanity uh, that's involved with work. And that includes everything from, you know, why you have unconscious bias, why um, you might choose to, you know, go this direction when you are talking to this type of individual. It's really candid conversations, really difficult feedback a lot of times, and being that strong champion, you know, for your organizational culture, your people, you know, ensuring everybody has a safe and inclusive place to work and explaining and really being that voice that helps the rest of the executive team understand why they should lead with that sort of people forward approach. And that's usually what's missing. Um, so across industry, I would say the largest and the biggest and the most impactful thing chief people officers can do um, is not only do all of the, you know, tactical HR functions, but really be that strong advisor um, and source of information, really, in a way that uh, is able to be received by their peer executives. And that's sometimes not easy to do. Uh, everybody's kind of ingrained in their ways, especially the higher you get up on the executive level. So it's somebody coming in really, um, just really being that champion and that advocate. So that would be what I would say uh, the, the number one across all industry chief people officers do. What should do? <laughs> what surprised you the most about how the role changed over time? You you spent a lot of time at very different industries, but overall, if you were describing what your role was when you started in an HR context, and then maybe as you were leaving a dedicated HR role at an organization, how did that change, and how did people talk about the role of HR? Yeah, so that's a great another great question. It, it, HR is one of those things where it's basically a four-letter word at most organizations. It's where you go to get in trouble. It's who checks the boxes. It's, uh, you know, they're kind of the, the, the schoolyard snitch, if you will. And so HR has gotten a really bad rap, and it, it really was that way for a very long time. It was a necessary evil. Box checkers keep us in line, hopefully keep us out of lawsuits, get us paid, give us benefits. And really, nothing could be further from the truth. Now, all of those things still have to happen, of course, but companies and where the shift in HR really happened was going from 
processes and procedures to a real more human approach to why we would want to engage people, why we would want to make a safe and inclusive place to work. And it's really become more holistic about the entire employee experience rather than just the nuts and bolts, the tactical. And that, you know, that's actually a shift that didn't happen that long ago. It's still not happening at a lot of companies, if you can believe it. Sometimes it's still very transactional, very nuts and bolts, and they don't leverage partners in the HR space who have the psychology background, the law background, maybe, um, to really help the organization holistically through its people. The smart ones are doing that, and it's now more common than it isn't. Uh, but that's the real evolution. It was the necessary evil to now this is somebody, this is a group, this is a part of the organization that's indispensable because it's dealing with the most important and, frankly, the most expensive part of any business, which is its people. I really appreciate the kind of visual representation of schoolyard snitch to the more holistic view of people. Where do you think there's still room to grow, to make it a more positive move towards that holistic experience that you're talking about? I think it's really just a focus on what people want. Like we don't want we don't want your effing office snacks. You know, we want to be treated with respect. We want to be included. We want diversity. Uh, we want different voices. We want equal opportunity. You know, people are really kind of demanding sort of that now. And um, that is a huge opportunity for companies to go, okay, let's take a look back. Do we need these giant campuses or do people want to work from home? What is the cost savings to our organization if we go to a work from home model? Yes, I understand you've lost a little bit of control, but you know, how do we give employees what they're actually solving for instead of just whatever tax write-offs we can get that people wanted 10 years ago but are no longer relevant? I mean, big campuses where there were doctors and um, you know, food on site and all the conveniences are sort of a thing of the past in, in this sort of COVID and what I imagine to be will be post-COVID world. People want time and experiences and not locked and chained to a desk. So where companies can really take stock and start to make shift is figuring out what exactly is it that your people want and why are we so averse to giving it to them? Hmm. I want to spend the bulk of the time really talking about your role in the organization, not the HR lady. Can you yeah. listeners back to the beginning? Can you give a little bit of the origin story of this operation? I would love to. So as a person who's been in the C-suite in the people space for almost 12 years and in the people space for over 20, um, I've often been referred to by my C-suite uh, counterparts when being introduced at the organization or in different parts of the business as this is our new HR lady, Tara. And I'm a, I'm a chief people officer. I'm C-level just like them. And to that point, you wouldn't go, this is the new bean counter guy. Uh, when you're referring to the CFO, you would give him the respect and call him the chief financial officer. And at first I thought it was just a fluke. Um, you know, I'm fairly young and I've been an executive at the sea level since I was in my late 20s. So I'm a fairly young, you know, person, but to be completely dismissed as just, you know, this is the new HR lady, it's like, hold on a minute, I have a team of 40. Like, I'm not just the HR lady. And when you do that, you completely minimize not only my position as the only woman 
at the executive level. Um, but also that obviously I'm not really that important. And I mean, maybe I'm not, that's not really the issue. But if I am to be respected and trusted and valued in the organization, certainly starting off on that foot doesn't really help, right? It's an uphill battle from that point. And so thus was born, not the HR lady. And what we do is a multitude of things. We have a show called Not the HR Lady. You can find it on YouTube or any of the other podcasting sites out there. Um, and we expose, talk about, and really get uncomfortable with the things that are plaguing corporate America and the international corporate scene as well. Uh, weekly on our show, we talk about everything that's impactful related to the employee experience, to businesses, what's going on with unemployment. And we get into some really uncomfortable conversations about, about Black Lives Matter, about misogyny, about sexism in the workplace. And we talk with uh, a lot of different experts and CEOs and lots of people all over the world um, re who really just want no more BS. And we don't, we don't need that, right? Workplaces can be free of BS and we can still go on. And, and that's what we're solving for. We're talking about the ugly stuff. And uh, we also do executive coaching. Uh, we have a book coming out called F Your Office Snacks, um, which is all about what employees really want. And, uh, and it, it's kind of born out of that concept and the community that's circled around Not the HR Lady, uh, which is great international and growing is really people who are committed to helping companies understand why they're humans. That, that H part in HR um, is so critical and it's so critical that we, sh that we shift, that we change. It can't go back to the way it was. We can't go back to having all white people on the board. We can't go back to not valuing other opinions. So it's really, I think, that movement of challenging companies to do better and to think differently. I definitely want to talk more about some of those uncomfortable conversations that you're having and what it's leading your perspective to be about where we need to go. But on a more personal level, in terms of your leadership style, what have you learned about yourself going from somebody who is at the top echelon of corporations and organizations and is now very much so an entrepreneur and leading your own pursuit, what would you kind of tell your younger self about the skills necessary to be successful? Uh, trust your gut and don't be afraid. You know, I let fear lead me for a long time. I'm a mother of seven children. Uh, I was the sole, you know, provider and breadwinner uh, for our family. And I think that I would love to go back and tell myself that you don't have to take some of the things that you took. Um, because you would lose your job. You don't be afraid. You can't be afraid because it's not going to solve for anything. Um, I've also realized since jumping from the corporate world into entrepreneurship uh, that I absolutely need an executive assistant and I'm really grateful for exec, wrang exec wranglers who provide me the organization, which I just do not have, <laughs> that comes with uh, running a business on your own. I've always been fortunate enough to, you know, have systems in a tech department and everybody kind of jump in. So for me, it's been a really interesting shift to uh, experience what my weaknesses and my areas of opportunity are. That is a huge one of them. And I am forever grateful for exec wranglers for getting me into shape. Um, but I, I, I really wish at this time I would be as I really wish when I was younger, I could be as fearless as I am now, um, that I could say the things that need to be said in a way that people get it. And I do that usually through storytelling. I post a lot on LinkedIn and I help, I hope um, people ex understand what 
is wrong with the stuff you're experiencing in the workplace and why you should kind of speak up about it. So that's, that's the biggest thing I would tell myself is go back and stop being so afraid. It'll all work out. One of the most um, prolific questions that we seem to get from listeners most frequently is what should the leaders of tomorrow be prepared for? What sort of world will they be leading in and what are the skills that are going to allow them to succeed in that world? What would you tell to somebody who is a rising leader at an organization, big or small, about the types of skills that they should be focusing on to be a leader in the future? Uh, your network is vitally important. There's that old saying, it's, you know, it's all about who you know. And that actually is the best piece of advice you could ever be given because that is how you, you know, that's how you get that next opportunity. That's how you grow into becoming, you know, a leader that would emulate uh, the kind of leaders that were great to you. Being able to really just understand and grow a solid network of people who are not like you, who are like you, who are different than you, who don't look like you, who all bring something to the table and really cultivate and craft that. That network is just so important. Be flexible. Uh, it's critical, especially now we have to go and ebb and flow and we're wearing masks. We're not wearing masks. We're working from home. We're not working from home. Um, be flexible and don't, don't get so tied up into what, you know, what perfect looks like because we're not, that's never going to be a reality. Um, so just go with the flow and don't be so rigid in your ways and definitely focus on growing that network. It's lonely at the top and it's definitely a lot more lonely if you don't have peers and people to rely on in your network. One of the most fascinating parts about hosting the show for me is being able to talk to people who are juggling lots of different pursuits when you think about organizing your day or organizing your week, how do you kind of set yourself up for the most productivity and really focus on getting the work done that you need to get done in the sharpest amount of time possible? So frankly, I invested in utilizing a virtual assistant service that manages my calendar, that does all of my notes and things that I'm going to need for all of the meetings that I'm having throughout the day. They type up our show notes for us. They've really helped, and that was a big investment. Again, as an entrepreneur, I'm you know, it's just Justin and I, and we run Not the HR Lady, to two-person operation, but with the help of a virtual assistant. And Exec Wranglers made that really easy for us in the sense that uh, I don't have to think about my day, which is beautiful. I, that's not a strong suit of me. I am much more valuable when I'm writing and creating, producing the show, you know, writing on the, writing the book, scheduling out different um, podcasts that I'm talking on or different shows that I'm, I'm going to be a part of. And having that is just critical. So it's not as expensive as you would expect. And for me, my time is more valuable than the work to get that done. So for me, that, that's what I use. And I highly encourage it. Um, if you have a little extra money, it can save you just tremendous amounts of time where you can actually focus on making more money. Um, you know, with the, with the skills and the tools that, that you're, you're good at. I definitely want to go back to some of those uncomfortable conversations that you're having on the show. What yeah. makes you the most optimistic about where the HR industry and maybe just the world in general from a working perspective sits right now? What makes you optimistic? And then where do you think there's a lot of work that still needs to be done to course correct so that we can make things better? 
I love this question because just this morning I decided to Google, uh, like on LinkedIn. So I guess not Google, but search, uh, diversity jobs. The reason I did that was I was wondering if people were really, or companies were really taking sort of this movement seriously. It looks like they are. That's beautiful to see. There are so many diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, social responsibility, all different titles, but all doing the same thing where that has never been a thing before. That makes me cautiously optimistic. And let me tell you about the cautious part. I worry that companies just don't know what they're doing. They're throwing a person into a role that probably wasn't budgeted, that probably doesn't have a budget in which nobody really knows what that person is supposed to be doing, but everybody knows that we need them. And I would just really hope that companies take the time, uh, maybe by either allowing this, whomever they hire to just run and soar and, and create the kind of uh, inclusivity that they're looking for, for their organization, shift their programs, whatever, or before hiring somebody, really do some soul searching and figure out why we feel like we need to jump on this bandwagon. What will it mean for us? Now, by, I'm in no means saying any, everybody shouldn't. Everyone should be jumping on this bandwagon. I just want to make sure they understand the why. Because if they don't, much like when times get tough, marketing gets cut, training gets cut. This will be another thing that gets cut. And I just don't want to see that happen because we're making such good progress now. It'd be a shame to just throw something at it, throw a person at it, throw a title at it, and then walk away. The work begins now. And I think you're really onto something there. If you, if you push this move towards a more inclusive and diverse workforce, which is the goal, but you do it in a way that allows people to just think it is about checking a box and instead you instill in them that having a leadership team and a workforce that reflects their customers, maybe reflects the world writ large, that is actually the correct business decision make, to make. It's not even just that it's the correct moral and ethical decision to make. It actually has the opportunity to benefit you from a strictly business perspective. And I think those types of conversations will stick even more intensely and lead to more succinct and longstanding change. That's exactly right. I couldn't agree with you more. What, what are you a little bit more maybe pessimistic about? I know you talked about the cautiously optimistic and then you did a good job of talking about the cautious. If companies needed to invest in something that they're just not spending the time in now, or if you were telling somebody who was new in their career and they were going into HR, where would you tell them to focus their energy? I think that with every company where I see the biggest disconnect is always, it's never with your frontline employees. It's, it's usually not with the managers necessarily. Uh, but when you get up into that senior leadership executive level uh, is where I think really big disconnects in the organization happen. And where I guess I am a little more hesitant or, or again, cautious, um, is that I, I would really love for companies to, to just frankly get their stuff together. Like you can throw all the programs you want to throw at whatever, all the training. You can create a training, a video, a memo, a whatever. But if the people at the top are not reflective, as you said, um, not even just in appearance, but in values, uh, it's just never going to work. And I'm really concerned that, uh, I, I guess I'm, 
I'm really concerned that companies are just not taking it as seriously. So I, I have to go back to the same answer almost that I just worry that we're going to, you know, this is the, whatever it is du jour and uh, the topic du jour, and then it's going to just go away, go by the wayside. You know, we're going to stop talking about it. I think we've even seen some of that happen. I, I know that I have on LinkedIn, people are saying, uh, you know, what happened to the Black Lives Matter? They don't matter anymore. People aren't talking about it. And, and I guess that's my biggest concern is that this is not um, a thing, right? This is not just one of those things we have to do. This is a part of how companies, to your point, are profitable and succeed by really investing and demonstrating uh, the walking, the talk that they're so quickly uh, to, to shout out from the rooftops via their, you know, tweets or whatever. Um, I would really like to see some action. Hmm. Well, walking the talk is a wonderful, inspiring way to actually end the conversation and shift to our final two questions that I thankfully get to ask all of our guests. And, and question number one is this, if you could describe your leadership style in one word, what would it be? Transparent. And our final rapid fire question is this, what is the best piece of advice that you have ever received? Oh, uh, my best piece of advice would be uh, from my mother who looked at me one day very young and said, I don't understand what it is that you think you're, you know, trying to accomplish, but you can do anything. So like, just, just go out there and do it. And so it was, it was one of those beautiful moments of my mom saying to me, you can do anything. I don't know why you're upset. I don't know why you're crying. I don't know why you feel defeated. You can do anything. Get back out there and do it. Hmm. Well, just go out there and do it is a wonderful spot to close. Thank you so much for joining us today. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Oh, Matt, thank you so much for having me. Uh, your listeners can find me on my website at notthehrlady.com, certainly on LinkedIn. Uh, again, my name is Tara Firiani, and on all social media at notthehrlady. Well, thank you for all the great insight, and thanks to all our great listeners for joining us. If you enjoyed today's show, we would love a rating and review in your podcast app of choice, and we truly appreciate it when you share our show with your network. You can find me on social media at Matthew Confer. You can find our show on Instagram at Learn to Lead Podcast. And you can find our organization Ability. That is A-B-I-L-I-T-I-E at Ability.com. And be sure to subscribe so that you get our next episode. And I want to thank all of you for joining us on the Learn to Lead Podcast. Podcast.